adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us from your word. Uh, We pray that you would send the Holy Spirit and give us uh, the eyes to see and the ears to hear the the wonderful treasures that you've uh, placed for us in your word that our hearts would be tender and soft, that we would be uh, responsive. I pray that you would give me the words to say, that that this passage would be clear as we we walk through it, and that we would see where we need to be corrected, reproved, where we need to obey, where we need to change our hearts and have our hearts changed by you. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we're going to be talking about adoption. And adoption is when you take someone who is not in your family and you make them a part of your family and you give to them all the rights and and privileges that it is to, to be in your family. If you have a biological child, that child automatically has the privilege of bearing your name. If you die, that child automatically inherits everything that you have, or in some cases, everything that you don't have. When you adopt a child, the child comes to share in those privileges. It isn't theirs by nature. It isn't theirs biologically. But in the eyes of the law and in the eyes of the mother and the father, that child is theirs just as if it had been born to them physically. Adoption is something that we see going on in our world, and there are, of course, many children that need families that love them. But adoption is also a spiritual thing that goes on when we come, become a part of the family of God. And so we're going to be talking about that this morning, and our main point is this. A believer in Jesus is adopted As a son of God. We say small s there because we realize that we're not God in the same sense that Jesus is God. But you'll notice a believer in Jesus is adopted into the family. And Paul calls us as believers sons and children of God. A believer in Jesus is adopted as a son. First this morning, being adopted as a son of God brings obligation to walk as a child of God who has the Holy Spirit. It brings to us obligations, responsibility. And this is part of what Paul is doing is flowing out of where he has come from already with this idea that in Jesus Christ there is no condemnation for us. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 1, 8, verse 3, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, By sending the Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that we might walk or that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. And so He is, if you'll pardon the pun, fleshing out what it means to walk and live with the Holy Spirit. And He contrasts the who we are in our sinfulness 
the flesh, not talking about physical flesh, but the, the sinful nature that inhabits of us all and that we are all enslaved to, with what it means to be a child of God purchased by Jesus Christ, having the blood applied to us, and we are in Christ and now have the Holy Spirit. You cannot be both enslaved to your sin and set free in Christ. And we've been saying week after week, it doesn't mean we don't have the presence of sin in our life, but it does mean that sin is no longer our ultimate master. And so he is fleshing this out with this idea of the Holy Spirit, and he moves in to calling the Holy Spirit the spirit of adoption. It's a gift that's given to us when God adopts us into the family. And so we have an obligation not to walk according to the flesh. Look at verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. So as I'm saying, Paul is drawing here a conclusion. So then, based on what he said and based on who you are in Jesus Christ, that he said, as we looked at last week, Christ is in you. You have a union and connection to him. So then, this is how we are to live. We are, we are obligated, you could translate this word. We are, are debtors. This is the path now that, that God has called us to, that we have a responsibility. I remember when I was a young boy and my dad would walk in the, the snow, his stride was, you know, just huge. Uh, he's as tall as I am now, or I'm as tall as he is now. And um, but when you know when you're when you're only three feet or whatever you are at the age of five or six, I mean, taking a long stride that is hard. But as as a child, when he would walk in the snow, I would want to walk in his footsteps. I would want to jump from one shoe print uh, to the next to see if I could make that gap, because he was my dad. And I looked up to him and I respected him. And, and I, as his son, in a sense, bear his name. So it is with the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. God is our Father. And we are to be being fashioned into the image of Christ. We bear his name as a Christian. We bear God the Father's name, in a sense, as sons of God, as those put into the family. And so we have an obligation. We have a debt. Paul doesn't mean here that we, we pay back God with what we do in our lives. We can never pay Him back for the free gift of His grace. That grace is so overwhelming and so far beyond what we deserve, we will never live up to it. And yet, as a believer, we don't just throw our hands up in the air and say, now that God has saved me, I will live however I want. Paul says, no, if you are setting your mind on on sin and living in captivity to it, do you really know who Jesus is? Do you really have the Holy Spirit in you? Because the Holy Spirit desires the things that are contrary to the flesh and the sin nature. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Galatians 5.24 And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Romans 8 verses 9 and 10 You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Speaking to believers. 
if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Paul's exhortation to walk in the ways of God are always in his letters based on who you are. He lays out, this is who you are in Christ. This is who you are as a child of God. This is who you are having the Holy Spirit. And he knows we're not perfect. Paul knows we're sinners still. We have the presence of sin in our lives. But he says, in effect, consistently and regularly in Scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit, God then is saying to us, this is who I have made you in Christ. Now, go out and live this way. The motivation comes from the grace of God. This is what He has done for us. And so this is who we are to be. And the obligation comes from the fact that the the grace of God is a free gift that we don't earn our salvation. And as I said already, we never pay it back. But if God has made you this way, how much more should we respond in a way that reflects who we are? And so, as Paul continues here, the flesh brings death, but the Spirit brings life. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You can go back to chapter 8, verse 6. For the mind set on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Paul is not saying how you live your life will determine if you are saved. We are not saved on the basis of how we live our lives. We are saved by the work of Jesus Christ. His shed blood covering our sins and being received through faith alone. That is what brings salvation. But the question then, and the statement we could say, is who you are determines or should determine how you live. So, as a believer in Jesus Christ, are you a slave to sin? The answer is no. And so it should manifest itself in your life that you're regularly fighting sin, dealing with it, seeking the face of God so that you might have the power and capacity to resist sin. Resisting sin is an overflow or an effect of the grace of God in your life. Romans 8.5 For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh and those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And Paul is saying to us, in effect, do you have the Holy Spirit or are you still in the flesh enslaved to the sin nature? And those who are stuck in their sins don't desire God. And those who are stuck in their sins have no compunction or desire or or urge 
to resist sin and turn to God. The Spirit desires the exact opposite. And the marks of the Holy Spirit working in us that overflow through the fruit of the Spirit is that God is working and changing our heart. He is rooting out those sinful desires. And He is putting godly desires there. Jesus says something very similar in Matthew chapter 7. You will recognize them. Here He's talking about false teachers. But it's a good principle in all scenarios. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Now, I don't know if they had raspberries in the ancient world because raspberries you can eat actually do come from thorn bushes. Uh, so I don't think they're, they're talking about that. But, but the, the idea here is, does good fruit come from bad trees? Paul, Jesus goes on and says that very thing. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. It's very similar to what Paul's saying. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. The consequences of giving in and yielding to sin and continually being enslaved to the sin nature that inhabits us all is eternal death. But if you are redeemed by Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God is within you. And so if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There's a a theologian and pastor Uh, who lived in the 1600s. His name was John Owen, and he wrote a little book, uh, The Mortification of Sin. Uh, That's a fancy way of saying putting to death sin. Mortify means to kill or put to death. The mortification, the, the putting to death of sin. And he has this wonderful little line in his book, Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Letting sin flourish in your life leads to death. Put it to death. It is an enemy. You either kill it or it kills you. I know some of you have served in the military and some of you served in scenarios in Afghanistan and in Iraq that put you in combat situations. And you know better than all of us If you don't kill the enemy, the enemy will kill you when you get in a firefight. The same is true with sin. If you don't kill sin, if you don't put it to death by the Holy Spirit, by relying on the the grace of God and turning to Him in prayer and and studying the Word of God and meditating it and, and using verses of Scripture when you face temptation, sin will kill you. And get a hold of you. It will grow in your life. It's interesting here in this passage that Paul doesn't say put to death the flesh. Remember Galatians 5.24 has said those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. What he does say is put to death the deeds of the body. 
And so we are liberated from sin, from its enslavement. And now Paul is saying in your daily life, in the way that you live, put to death that desire to do sinful things. You are in Jesus Christ a new creation. Now start living that way, which means in your body, in your behavior, in your actions. Work on stopping to sin. Put it to death. A temptation comes up, something in your heart, something in your mind says, you know, you ought to, you ought to go and do that. Oh, you've done that before. What's it going to hurt? Just, just one more time. This will be the last time I give in to this temptation. And then we go and we yield it to it. And it's kind of like feeding a dragon. And the more you indulge it, the larger it grows. And the more it holds you captive. Paul has said, you are at the core of your being set free from your captivity. Now, put to death the deeds of the body. Those things that we still at times desire to do. Romans 6, 6 and 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now that we have the new heart, we're to respond. We're to obey. That God has given us the equipping and the capacity. You are in Christ. You have been made a good tree. Now, do what good trees do. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Let me give you two things here. First, a warning and then a statement of comfort. First, the warning. If you don't bear fruit, if you have no desire to bear fruit, if you sin, and we all stumble in sin, and we all struggle with sin, but if you sin and have no conviction, no desire anywhere, to resist sin, you need to ask yourself the question, am I still enslaved to sin? Do I know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior? Have I turned to Him as Savior and repented and confessed that Jesus is Lord? Is Christ really in me? If you are so consistently living and walking in sin, in what Paul is calling the flesh here, without conviction or care, is it possible that your mind might actually be set on the flesh? And to be set on the flesh is to be an enslavement to it and condemned under it. We need to take that warning and, and ask ourselves, how am I walking in the Lord? Do I have the motivation that the Holy Spirit brings, and maybe I need to ask for more of it as I struggle with sin. But there's a danger here. If I have no desires to fight it, what does that say about who I really am? And I give this as a warning. Don't get complacent if you're a believer. Don't get complacent in your fight against sin. Let me give you a statement now of comfort. 
There are some of us maybe who are here today that have such a, a weak and tender conscience. And we're a, we're a genuine believer. And, and immediately we hear those warnings and we, we feel like we're plunged into to self-doubt. And we maybe are say, well, I, I believe in Jesus, but, but what if it's not enough? And maybe we're even saying to ourselves, you know, look at my sin this week. The comfort is in this, verse 15a, and we'll, we'll go into this a little more later, but let me just throw this out now. Verse 15a, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. If you're feeling that weakness in these moments, trust Christ. There are two kinds of people here in this scenario as I'm unfolding it with the warning and the comfort. There's the kind that doesn't care. And you need the warning. And then there's the kind that, that, that cares so much any little warning you feel like is going to crush you. And you need to remember you are a child of God. And God will help you fight those sins. And the very fact that you have the desire to fight sin. And sometimes, you know, we are so overwhelmed with sin that that's all we feel like we have in that moment. The desire to fight. But that's the Holy Spirit. Trust God. Second, this morning, those who are the sons of God have the Holy Spirit. If you are a son of God, you have the Holy Spirit. So look at verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. The distinguishing mark of your sonship in Jesus Christ here is that the Holy Spirit is leading you. You have conviction. You have seen since your conversion some measure of growing in love and joy and peace and kindness. And I'm not, don't measure yourself against other people. Just look at where you've come from. And what God has done in your life, a mark and a sign that you are a child of God, is that you've been led by the Holy Spirit. We should want to be led by the Holy Spirit. It's a good thing to be led by the Holy Spirit as He puts desires and and new abilities into our lives. We are under a new authority in Jesus Let me make a couple statements here about the language of being a son of God. First, Paul's language here is not sexist. Okay, so so don't don't let's not freak out here. He says sons of God, but he also two verses later in verse 16 and 17 says children of God. He says it as well in Ephesians 5 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Uh, You could go to 1 John as well for what kind of love has the Father given to us that we should be called children of God. Uh, And so we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. But typically in the ancient world, it was only sons who inherit. I'm not saying that's right necessarily. I'm just saying that's the way it was. And so highlighting this phrase son of God highlights the the amount of the inheritance that we have. It highlights the connection. Second, Paul is drawing a connection between Jesus, the Son, capital S, and us, the Son's lowercase s. And, and they're, they're just that, that connection doesn't ring quite as clearly if he would have just said in every instance, children, that Jesus is the eternal Son 
But you as an adopted son get all of the rights and privileges that Jesus himself has. Not in terms of worship, not in terms of of eternal glory, but in terms of the prizes of the kingdom of God. In terms of the inheritance of the new heavens and the new earth. We get what Jesus got when he was crowned in glory. Third, then, the other reason I think he uses the phrase son of God is the root word adoption in in the Greek actually begins with the same word for son. And one of the unique privileges of being God's child or having uh, the adoption or the status of sonship is the gift of the Holy Spirit has been given to us. Now think about this. Just as Jesus in his humanity was empowered by the Holy Spirit. So we get it when we we get him when we become part of the family. Think about Jesus's baptism. The spirit comes down as a dove and the voice of God cries out. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And the spirit empowers Jesus. Jesus himself even says that he does his miracles if By the Holy Spirit I cast out these demons. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you or has come. Jesus in his resurrection is given even more of the spirit in his human body. So Romans chapter one, verse three and four concerning his son, who was a descendant from David, according to the flesh and was declared Or we could even say appointed to be son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection, Jesus Christ, our Lord. In other words, what happened to Jesus's humanity in his resurrection? He is raised up and he is crowned with glory and he is declared in power to be the son of God through this resurrection in the Holy Spirit. And so 1 Corinthians 15.45 says that Jesus becomes a life-giving Spirit. That He becomes the One who has the resurrection body and gives the Holy Spirit to other people. You and I as adopted into the family get the same Holy Spirit that Jesus had In His humanity. We're going to get the same resurrected, glorified body in the last days that Jesus has in His humanity. All of the privileges that Christ achieved on the cross and even got for Himself as He got the kingdom. You and I get the same inheritance. Now, we are different from Jesus. Jesus is eternally the Son of God. Jesus has the divine nature from all eternity past, radiating the glory of God. We don't have that, and we never will have that. We don't become gods. But what Jesus experienced in His humanity as He is raised up and crowned with glory and honor, we will become partakers in. That's the inheritance. That's what awaits us. So we don't have a spirit of fear, but a spirit of sonship or a spirit of adoption. 
you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So we are no longer enslaved to sin. You don't have to be enslaved to guilt anymore. You aren't guilty before God. You've been forgiven and justified and declared righteous. Don't be enslaved to the fear of sin and the fear of punishment. Christ has exhausted the wrath of God for you. You will not be judged because Christ bore the judgment for you if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to cry and wail out under this judgment. Instead, we get this privilege of crying, Father, Abba. The same cry that Jesus in His earthly life gives to His Father as He prays, as He cries out on the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane and throughout His earthly life, Abba, my Father, is the same privilege that we now have to cry out in our prayers. Think about that. Think about that. What's fascinating here is that Paul keeps the Aramaic word I mean, he really just says, Father, Father. He says, Father once in Aramaic, and he says, Father once in Greek. Why does he do that? Is he being redundant? No. He's reminding you of what Jesus cried out. And while the entire New Testament is written in Greek, Jesus most likely in his earthly life spoke Aramaic. The majority of the time, there's a little debate. We don't know exactly. Maybe Jesus did speak some Greek. He probably, of course, knew Hebrew because he could read uh, the scrolls in the synagogue and the word of God. But in the day to day going about in your business, you know, when he's a carpenter for his dad, his earthly father, Joseph, he's speaking Aramaic. Paul uses the Aramaic word. Jesus prayed, I'm sure, in Aramaic, saying, Abba, Father. There's a little bit of debate here. Some have suggested, uh, well, maybe this word Abba also means daddy. Uh, I think the debate kind of gets us sidetracked. And I think one of the reasons the debate gets us sidetracked is father is a word of intimacy. It's only kind of in English that sometimes we say, well, daddy is a really intimate word and father is a very prim and proper formal word. But I'll tell you what. Nobody else except my brother and my sister have the right to call my dad father. We call him dad. We call him daddy. We call him father. It all essentially means the same thing when we address him as the one whose children we are. And the same is true when you think about God. Father is not less of an intimate term than Abba here, I don't think. We get to call him dad. We get to call him Father. One of the, the things that this kind of struck home to me just one time in, in my thinking is I have a pastor who, who mentored me and I, I, I look up to him and, and respect him and just think the world of him. And I have a good friend who married uh, his daughter, one of his, his daughter, my mentor's daughters. And I've known the girl since we were, you know, like really little kids. I still think of my mentor as my mentor. 
my friend is the son-in-law. And he gets to call my mentor dad. There's a difference. There's an intimacy there. That my friend has been welcomed and, and grafted, if you will, into the family by marriage. You and I have been grafted into the family of God. Where we can call him father, dad, Abba. It is an amazing privilege Adoption means that we have all the rights and privileges of the children, although we are not genetically connected to the parent. Greece and Rome had some pretty high laws on adoption and what it entailed and what it didn't entail and the legal requirements and what you could do and not do and uh, how they had to inherit and all these things. And there's a little bit of difference between the Greek and Roman laws. And some scholars debate on, on which, which Paul might have been using as his background. And, and you know what? It doesn't really matter. Because despite all the differences, adoption is something, for whatever reason, it transcends cultures. It's in Greece. It's in Rome. It's in Europe in the Middle Ages. It's in our culture today. I think it's even fair to say it was in ancient Israel. As you think about how God made the nation of Israel his son. And Paul, even in Romans 9, 4, talks about that as, in a sense as being their adoption. They weren't his nation. They weren't a righteous people. And God said, no, you're going to be my son, my firstborn son. Remember when he takes him out of Egypt? Remember what he has Moses go and say to Pharaoh? Not just let my people go, but this is my firstborn son. Let my kid go or I will take your kid, your firstborn son. Why do you have the whole Passover where, where all of the firstborns, when the house isn't covered by blood, all of the firstborns die? Because God is saving his children and he's going to make the people of Israel his family. And God does the same thing for us. And He does it in the work of Christ. Third, this morning, being a son of God, then the Holy Spirit bears witness. Look at verse 16. The Holy Spirit then bears witness with our own. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, if you had to choose here between your spirit bearing witness... And the Holy Spirit bearing witness, and, and it's not a choice, but if you had to choose, you want the Holy Spirit bearing witness. Think about your own heart, how, how fickle it can be sometimes. How sometimes you wake up and you don't feel like a Christian. How sometimes you're discouraged and you wonder where, where God is in that moment. Or you're struggling with some sin and you say to yourself, I know I believe but, oh, maybe, what if, I'm, what if I'm not a Christian? I'm sure some in this room have been there at some point. I remember being a young child when my own de uh, grandfather died and saying to myself, I know I'm a believer, but, but what if? And that what if just goes around in your mind and it plagues you. Your own heart sometimes isn't the best testimony that you're a child of God. But the Spirit is the perfect testifier. 
the perfect one. Just as, just as we are there crying out to God, Abba, Father, the Holy Spirit is there crying out to God on our behalf, Abba, Father. If it wasn't enough that going into the presence of God, you have Jesus Christ as our high priest saying, yes, this is my child. I've bought him by my blood. As if that wasn't enough, and, and it is enough, but, but as if it wasn't enough, you also get the Holy Spirit. And he's not just in heaven being a mediator. He's in your heart so that when your own heart is fickle, the Holy Spirit is crying out and saying, Abba, Father. So there are phases in the Christian life, like we can say, like that man in the Gospels, we can say, you know, I believe, but, but help my unbelief. I, I know I'm saved. I know I trust in You. But, but Abba, Father, I'm struggling. And the Holy Spirit cries with us. And in some cases, for us, because we are too weak to even cry out to God in those moments. Not only can we call God our Father because we're adopted, we have the Holy Spirit there enabling and empowering and carrying us along, crying, Abba, Father, for us when we are weak. That is awesome. That the same thing that Jesus cries to God is the same thing that the Holy Spirit wants us to cry to God the Father. We are heirs then of God and co-heirs with Christ. So look at verse 17. If we are children then, heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, Provided we suffer with Him in order that we might be glorified with Him. I've said this already. But co-heirs with Christ. That everything that Jesus Christ gets as the King in the kingdom, we will share in that as our inheritance. Co-heirs. Meaning, we are heirs along with Him. Now, Christ is going to get worshipped and He sits at the right hand of the Father. And I, I want to be clear that it's not that we get that. We don't ask people to bow down and worship us. But you think about how Jesus Christ being raised up, Hebrews chapter 2, is crowned with glory and honor. The New Testament says that we will reign with Christ. We will be crowned with glory and honor. Christ is our brother. Our big brother, in a sense. The perfect inheritor, in a sense. But we don't get less of an inheritance. God doesn't look and say, well, you're adopted, so you really don't count. He says you're adopted. And you're in the family. And you're a co-heir with Jesus. Believers then are expected to suffer with Christ as part of the process of being made like Christ. So, if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. Notice this. 
with this one verse and, and literally just a, a section, a fragment of this verse, the entire concept of the prosperity gospel falls apart for the lie that it is. What does God expect will happen with his children? Will they be exempt from suffering? Will the minute you become a Christian, everything will go perfect and smooth. The hurricane will never hit your house because you are a Christian. You will never lose your job. In fact, if you put money in the offering plate today, you will get it back a hundredfold because you will have riches. No. And, and please don't take me saying that out of context. You know, listen to the whole thing. No, that's wrong. Don't think that way. What does God say will happen to his children? And we actually talked about this in Sunday school this morning. If, if the world hated me, Jesus says, don't you think it's also going to hate you? Yeah. He says, provided we suffer with him. Was Jesus the son of God? Yes. Was Jesus in his earthly life exempt from suffering? No. Now, he did it to redeem us and to save us. When we suffer, we are doing it because we are bearing the image of Jesus. But just as Jesus walked a path of suffering and that led to his glory, we in Christ as these adopted kids, will in this life at times walk a path of suffering, of hardship, of difficult things. Why? Because Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, is working in us to conform us to His image, to make us more Christ-like. It is, it is like polishing gold and silver, and you've got to use elbow grease. And that creates friction and heat. But the end result is we will shine in glory. The path that we walk in this life is not glory. Although God is working in us. And that's amazing. The path that we walk in this life is suffering. And sometimes you're going to be resisting sin. And other people are going to make you suffer for it. You lose your job. You lose friends. Sometimes you'll be in such anxiety because you're trying to resist sin and it will cause internal suffering. Sometimes it might just be things that happen in the world. Death. Disease. Destruction. Paul will get into this later in chapter 8 as he's developing this whole thought. And so I don't want to spill the beans on everything that he's going to say. But he says this in Romans 8, 22 and 23. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who are the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of of our bodies. Paul has here adoption is kind of an already not yet. We already are adopted. We have all of the privilege, but there's something that yet that awaits in our adoption, the redemption of our bodies, the resurrection. 
And so even in this life, we are going to groan and have struggles. And in some ways, it's going to be like childbirth. And I'm sure many of you ladies can tell us how awful and horrible and suffering uh, that that is in those moments. And, and I believe you. <laughs> I haven't done it myself, but I believe you. The point is this. That is the path that God calls us to walk. But as Paul will say, what can separate us from the love of God in Christ? Neither famine nor persecution. Uh, Let me just read it so I don't forget any. Well, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? For as it is written, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul's saying that about himself as Christians. It's horrible sometimes. But what can take away this sonship? Because you belong to the Father, you belong to the Son, and you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Let me give you three quick applications. A believer in Jesus is adopted as a son of God. Number one, as adopted, you have all the rights and privileges of a full heir. I've been saying that, but let that sink in. You are not a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. We're all adopted into the family. And as much as we are co-heirs with Christ, I think we can fairly say we are all co-heirs with each other. There is no class structure, no ranking of privilege in the family of God. We're all adopted into it. Second, God will not abandon his children. He can't cut you off from it. If he's gone to all of these great lengths, sending the son to die, having the son shed his blood, all of these things just to get you into the family, don't you think he's going to keep you? God doesn't lose his own. Third, God's fatherhood is perfect. I want to say this, and some of you probably have had experiences with earthly fathers that, are, that were maybe in some cases horrible. Maybe this concept of crying out to God as your father is just really hard and really tough. There's not a quick fix this. I'm not going to give you some sort of silver bullet. Sometimes these things last with us and it's just God works over time in our hearts. But let me say this. Don't judge God by earthly fathers. Judge earthly fathers by God. In other words, God is the perfect Father by whom we draw our standard of fatherhood. And if you've had horrible fathers on earth, don't say, well, I can't call God my Father because this is triggering to me. Start with God and say, what does a perfect Father do? You see Him, even in the Old Testament, loving orphans and widows and the childless and the the sojourner in the land. This unbending compassion. God wanted you and loved you and chose you before the foundations of the world to be adopted into His family. If your earthly father treated you like garbage and basically kicked you out, your heavenly father, knowing who you would be in your sinfulness, knew you before the foundations of the world and brought you into his family.
Ephesians chapter 1. Let me just read it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Let me just say this lastly, and I think I've said this three, this is going on three weeks in a row now. The Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. How can you not praise the three eternal persons who are one God? As you walk through this passage, doesn't your heart just delight in how great and awesome God is? He's the Father, He's the Son. He's the Holy Spirit. Three eternal persons in in wonderful communion from before the foundations of the world. They didn't need anything. They had each other and that they were one God. And yet in their perfect plan to create and redeem creation and make their glory known within creation, they said to those whom they'd predestined from before the foundations of the world, they said through the work of Christ, Come, be adopted into the family. Share in the communion and the fellowship that we've had. Call me Abba. Call me Father. Call me your brother. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for this day and we want to give you praise and and give you glory and honor. We just marvel at, at the work of God in Christ. Lord, may we see you for who you are, the great and mighty uh, triune God, three persons. May we give praise and glory to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, not as three gods, but as one. And we just thank you for your gracious work in adopting us into the family. Oh, Lord, we don't deserve that. But because of your great love, you've given it to us. Amen.